we're back in the Gospel of Luke this morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. Turn there in your Bibles if you have them. Follow along on the screen if you, if you don't, or navigate there on your, on your, your mobile device. Um, we're going to be, we're going to spend the next two months in the gospel of Luke, uh, most of October and November. Um, and so we're going to jump back into, to Jesus, uh, Jesus journey from Galilee in Northern Israel down to Jerusalem in Southern, uh, Israel. He began his life and his ministry, uh, you know, in Galilee and he ended his life and his ministry, uh, in in Jerusalem. That's where he would ultimately go to, to die on the cross and to, you know, kind of the culmination of his life and ministry. And so uh, chapters Luke 9 to 19 chronicle that uh, journey, that, that trip from, uh, from Galilee to, to Jerusalem. And along, as, as he was going, he would continue to, um, you know, preach and teach, heal, do miracles, things like that along, along the way in various cities and places. And so today, Jesus is going to interact with the Pharisees specifically about the kingdom of God, uh, what the kingdom of God is, what, uh, you know, when it's coming, what they should expect, how they should uh, prepare, these, kind, these kinds of things. So that's where we're heading in Luke 17, verses 20 to 37. You might not remember, but this is actually the sermon, or this isn't the sermon, but this is the text that I preached on, um, but when I like, was coming here to, like, as a candidate. I uh, preached one sermon out of the Old Testament, one sermon out of the New Testament, and this was the text that I, that I preached on, uh, but I wrote it again. Um, I, it's, a diff, it's a different sermon, but I, so I, I like pulled that sermon uh, out, of my, out of my archives on my computer to read it, and I didn't remember any of it. It was like, it was like I was reading a, a, another sermon written by another person entirely. I'd forgotten all of it. So, so be encouraged. If you forget things that I say, so do I. And, there, and that's actually, like, it, and I was thinking about it this week. I was like, I wonder if that's bad. I wonder if I should, like, keep that on the DL. Don't let anyone know. But I don't know that it is. I, I, may, I may have forgotten this. I might have said this before as well, but, but hearing sermons is, is um, it's, not, it's not like, you know, studying. It's not like being in college and, like, cramming for a test where you're trying to acquire as many facts and, and you know, data as you can so that you can, you know, regurgitate it and pass a test or something like that. That's not, that's not how God designed preaching to, to work and to like, you know, be, uh, you know, work in the lives of, of Christians. Uh, you know, hearing, preaching sermons and hearing sermons is less like studying for a test in college and it's more like, like eating a meal where, where you, you know, in all likelihood, you don't remember what you ate for dinner a month ago on a particular night or a year ago on a particular night, but you were fed. Like you, you, you ate food, you consumed nutrients that kept you alive, and had you not eaten, you would have starved to death. Since you did eat, you, you are able to kind of keep going. And that's kind of how preaching is intended to work in the lives of, of Christians, is that you don't have to remember every sermon you ever hear. You don't have to like, you know, retain all of the facts of every sermon that you hear, but you, you're sustained by them. And you're, you're kind of, you, you get from one Sunday to the next by hearing a sermon and by being blessed by it, having your soul be nourished because of it. And so if you forget a lot of what you hear me say, don't, don't feel, feel bad. So, so do I. But I was reading through my sermon uh, from, from uh, July, June or July of 2016, and I started with an illustration I thought was funny. I wanted to, to say it again about a guy named Edgar Wisenant, um, who was a, an engineer. Again, I'm reading this like as if for the first time this week, and I was like, this is this is hilarious. It's a guy named Edgar Wisenant. He was an engineer for NASA in the 20th century, and he wrote a book called uh, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. 
Now, it, was, it, didn't, ha- it didn't happen, so came and went, swing and a miss for Edgar Wisenant. But this guy was like really, really, bought, like he was quoted as during, in an interview, he was quoted as saying, uh, if there were a king in this country who could make this happen, and if it were legally allowed for me to gamble with my life, I would stake my life on the fact that Jesus is going to return in September 1988. So he was like dead set. He was like not lying. He, he really was, was himself convinced. And, you know, Christians everywhere were like, you know, sell, like selling their retirement, you know, like going on trips and stuff. Like they were like keeping their kids out of school so that they could all be gathered together on this one day in September 1988 so that they could like go to, to be, you know, with the Lord, Lord together. And of course, uh, prediction, or September 1988 came and went uh, and, and it didn't happen. And you'd think that Edgar Wisenant would have like toned it down a little bit, you know, maybe like learned from his, this guy doubled down. He was like, so he immediately came out with a book saying why he was sure that the rapture was going to come in 1989. And, this not, and then 1990, 1991, 1992, he wrote books every year saying this is why I'm sure that the, that the rapture is going to happen this year. But it was, it was funny because they were like, he, his his uh, surety was kind of, his like amount of certainty was decreasing. By 1993, so in 1988, it was 88 reasons why the rapture's gonna happen this year. By 1993, it was, here's 23 reasons why I'm pretty sure the rapture is gonna happen in 1993. So, this is a fun, so the, the more I read about this guy, the, the, the more, more kind of uh, humored I was, was by him. But the, the reality is, like, we're, we're very, you know, not fixated on, but we're fascinated by, by the end times and the kingdom of God and when is it going to come and, and what are the circumstances going to be around uh, the return of Christ and the kingdom of God and kind of, you know, th- these things are all, all interesting and, and fascinating to us. There's a lot that we can't, I mean, look, take it from Edgar Wisnett, there's a lot that we can't know about Christ's return and about the kingdom of God and when it's going to happen and all these things. There's a lot of things that we can know. And some of the things that we can know, uh, we see from Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 17, uh, verses 20 to 37. So I'm going to read through it, and then we're going to spend a few minutes uh, considering uh, what it means for us. Starting in verse 20, we see, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But... First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage right up until the day when Noah entered the ark and then the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, Fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. 
On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with goods in his house not come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let them not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would bless uh, this time as we listen to your word, as we consider how your word uh, might apply to our lives. We pray, Lord, that it would be profitable. We pray that it would be edifying. We pray that you would, you would use this time to, to form us into a church that, that glorifies you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so Pharisees come up to Jesus. Jesus, when is the kingdom of God going to happen? When will, when will, it, when will it come? Pharisees are often asking Jesus questions. They are, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for, for stories in the Gospels to, to begin with. The Pharisees approach Jesus and ask him, and sometimes they're trying to trick him, right? Sometimes they're asking him questions that they think there is no, like, it's impossible to answer, like, and, and, or like asking, like, like logical impossibilities, or, um, you know, they're asking him questions that, like, no matter what you say, you're kind of, it's like a catch-22. If I say this, then these people will hate me, and they'll, they'll try to, you know, deplatform me, or if I say this, then these people will not like me, and they'll try to cancel me. So they're, they're, a lot of times they have nefarious intent with the questions that they're asking Jesus. This one seems to be legitimate. They seem to just be genuinely curious. When will the kingdom of God come? Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God. He's the, he's the resident authority on the kingdom of God. All through, I mean, Luke 4, 6, 8, 9, 12, among others, uh, you know, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He says, yours is the kingdom of God. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God are yours. He says, people will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, right? Don't be afraid, little flock, because God has been pleased to give you the kingdom of God. So Jesus talks about the kingdom of God quite a bit. So they're saying, you know, when, when is this going to happen? But here's the assumption. Here's kind of the, the premise that's baked into the Pharisees' question about the kingdom of God. And it's that the, the kingdom of God is this physical, tangible, you know, geopolitical reality that they are waiting for, hoping for, and, and you know, expecting to come soon, right? right? Uh, you know, centuries ago, God had promised Abraham that he would give to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. He'd give them land, he'd give them a nation, he'd give them a uh, blessing, right? And that, that promise at various points throughout the history of the nation of Israel and the people of God seemed like it was coming true, right? When King David rises to his ascendancy and his son Solomon, there's great prosperity, there's, there's great abundance, there's great blessing. The nation is crushing it, right? It's doing really well, and it looks like God is keeping his promise to his people. But more recently, centuries later, 
you know, uh, David is long since gone. Solomon is long since God, and so ne- gone. And so now the nation has gone into exile. Right now, uh, Assyria and Babylon have defeated them. They've been occupied by Persia and by Greece and by Rome. There are Roman guards in the streets. There's there's oppressive taxation. God's people are cowering in in fear. They're waiting and hoping that maybe one day God will reverse all this. God will make all things right. God will kind of put us back on top of the power structure like we were under, under David and under Solomon, right? The evil nations that are oppressing us will be defeated and put down, and the people of God will be elevated to prosperity once again. That was how they understood the kingdom of God. God intervening in this world on behalf of his people, putting down their enemies and establishing them under the righteous, benevolent rule of the the Messiah. That's the, the kingdom of God. And so the Pharisees are understandably asking, when is this going to happen? When are we going to overthrow our enemies? When is God's kingdom going to be established? Right? And, and, and they're probably also thinking because we, we fully expect when that happens that we've got, you know, a, a pretty good, like, we've got some pretty, pretty good positions waiting for us, right? High-ranking, you know, cabinet positions or, or whatever, whatever it is. When is the kingdom of God going to come? And Jesus answered, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, Right? So, so if you're assuming, if you're operating under the, under the premise that it's going to be this big, political, sensational overthrow of the wicked and kind of raising up of you and people that are like you, it's not going to look like that. It's not going to be as observable as that. Nor, nor will they say, look, here it is, or, or there. Right? So they're probably thinking, well, then what, what even is the kingdom of God? Yeah. If the kingdom of God's not something that you can observe, it's, it's not something that you can look at and point to and touch and, and feel. And like, what, if, what if someone were to say, you know, I'm going to give you a billion dollars, but you can't see it. You can't spend it. You won't, like when you look at the account balance, it's not going to be there. You'll never be able to see it, touch it, use it. But, I, but like, then you'd say, well, then that's, you're not really giving. What, what is a billion dollars if it's not something that's observable and tangible, something that I can see and experience and spend on, on things? And that's probably how they're understanding this, this language about the, the kingdom. We, we don't know what it means for there to be a kingdom of God that is not observable, a kingdom of God that people cannot look at and point to and say, here it is, there it is. And then Jesus takes it even one step further. It's not observable. You can't see, look, here it is. In fact, it's so subtle, it's so difficult or impossible to observe and to point to that the, the kingdom of God is actually in the midst of you right now. You're in it. The, the kingdom is here. It's like, it's like we are interacting with it. We are experiencing it as we speak. It's right in front of your, your face. So if you're operating under the sense that the kingdom of God is this big, grand, sensational overthrow of your enemies and kind of the elevation of you and people like you to, to you know, have this like comfortable life and to have all the power and influence that you think that you should have, that's not what the kingdom of God is like. That's how worldly kingdoms are established. That's not how Jesus' kingdom is established. Jesus' kingdom is not established by displays of force where he dominates his enemies. His kingdom is established by, by God himself, the second person of the Trinity, humbling himself, pouring himself out into uh, a human being, living with people, walking with people. 
dying on a cross for their sins. The kingdom of God is not established by, by you know, political, powerful dominance. It's established by repentance and faith, by, by regular people that no one's ever heard of, no one probably ever will hear of, repenting of their sins, trusting in Jesus. It's not sensational. It's not impressive. It, it's, it's, uh, it's downright ordinary and regular and, and kind of subtle and nondescript, and, and not all that impressive. So the kingdom is small, the kingdom is invisible, and the kingdom is happening here right now as we speak, right? You Pharisees, you don't need to ask me, Jesus, when the kingdom is coming, because you're already in it. You're, it's in the midst of you. We are, it is present here with us right now. The kingdom is here now. Fair enough. Seems to make sense. But how do we square that with the following verses? Verse 22. Jesus says, He said to the disciples, The days are coming, future tense, the days are coming when you will, future tense, desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Wait, so I thought the kingdom of God is here in our midst right now. I thought it's already here with us. Now you're saying that it's something that's coming in the future, or there will be a time in the future when we're longing for it, and it won't be here yet. They will say, look here, or look there, but do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So now Jesus is saying the kingdom of God, the return of Christ, is going to be big. It's going to be massive. It's going to be uh, a not, not only will it be observable, you won't be able to miss it if you try. It's going to light up the, the skies. It's going to be incredibly unmistakable in every way. Verses 20 to 21, the kingdom is small, subtle, invisible. You don't notice it. It's here. You don't even see it. Verses 22 to 24, it's big and massive and incredible and sensational, and you can't miss it if you try. There's a, there's a tension there. Jesus is saying two different things that are, are difficult to, to reconcile, that the kingdom is, is subtle and small, but the kingdom is also incredible and unmistakable. The kingdom is already here, and the kingdom is not here yet. This is where we get a, a theological doctrine called inaugurated eschatology. Big words. Um, basically, it means that the eschaton, the end times, the end of all things, right? When, when Jesus returns and kind of establishes his kingdom, the eschaton is going to con- come about in an inaugurated sense, right? That the, the kingdom of God is inaugurated when Jesus comes in. Jesus is the king. So Jesus comes into the world. He's the king. He proclaims the kingdom. He dies for sin. He uh, establishes, he, he you know, accomplishes forgiveness and salvation for his people. He invites them to repent and believe, and when they do, they are a part of his kingdom. So the kingdom is inaugurated in, a, in the near term when Jesus uh, comes into the world. And in that sense, the kingdom is already here, verses 20 to 21. It's already here. It's now. It's in your midst. And at the same time, there's another sense in which God's kingdom will be fully, finally, exhaustively consummated when he returns. When Jesus comes back a second time and when he, when he does all the things we were talking about, when he puts down all of his enemies once and for all, and when he saves and vindicates his people once and for all and gathers them to be with him forever in heaven. And it's in that sense that God's kingdom is not here yet. 
already here, not here yet. It's inaugurated when Jesus comes the first time, and it's consummated when Jesus returns the, the second time. And not only is it, uh, is it already here and not here yet and kind of inaugurated and consummated, but Jesus' kingdom is also, uh, you know, it, it comes about through and, and it, is, it is established by and it is completely and entirely dependent upon Jesus' death on the cross. Verse 25. But first, he, the Son of Man, first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So granted the kingdom is here, granted I'm the king and, and I'm ushering in a kingdom, but in the not yet sense, the kingdom is going to come when I return and when I make everything right. But in order for me to return and make everything right, I have to return from heaven. In order for me to be in heaven, I have to ascend from here to, to heaven. In order for me to ascend, I have to be resurrected from the dead. In order for me to be in the grave, I have to die on the cross. There's like a, a linear kind of a, a chain of dominoes, each of which is going to trigger the next. And Jesus is saying, I cannot usher in my final, eternal, glorious kingdom until after I suffer and die on a cross to pay the penalty for sin. God is glorious, perfect, righteous. God created humanity. Humanity sinned and and evoked and stirred up the wrath of God. And Jesus came to, to stand directly in the path of that oncoming wrath that is rightfully ours and to take it for us and to absorb it for us. But, but they're, they're, I mean, apart from that happening, apart from that transaction taking place where Jesus takes our punishment, Jesus takes our wrath, Jesus gives us his righteousness so that we can be welcomed into God's kingdom on behalf of Jesus as if we had lived the perfect life of Jesus. Apart from that, there is no kingdom. There is no kingdom without the cross. There's no crown for Jesus without going through the the cross of of Christ. Jesus knew full well the only way that he could enjoy eternity with his Father and Spirit and the church that he loved was for him to die on the cross to save them from their sins. So the kingdom is here already because Jesus the king is here and he's proclaiming it and he's establishing it as he speaks. The kingdom is not here yet because Jesus has to die first and then he has to be resurrected and ascend to heaven and then return to establish it in its final sense. But these these aren't just like, like, it's not just, this isn't just like fodder for like seminarians to argue about, uh, you know, in, in classrooms. This isn't just, you know, semantics or academics. This is like there are real world implications and real world applications for this kind of, this doctrine of inaugurated eschatology that already and not yet, right? If the, if the kingdom of God is here now, and if Jesus established it, and it is in a very real sense already happened, already inaugurated, already taking place, that has implications for our lives, right? That, that, one, that means that our lives matter. Like, we're not living these lives that are ultimately going to be just, you know, cannon fodder, burned up, thrown into a shredder in lieu of a new, different kingdom that's somewhere else other than where we are now or something, right? This life in this world really matters. Your work, 
Your, your, your job matters. How well you do your work matters. Your relationships matter. They're going to stretch on into eternity. Your family matters. How, you know, whether you're a godly spouse or parent, that matters. The decisions you make in this life, the actions that you take in this life matters, right? There are a lot of religions that think that this life doesn't matter, right? That think, like, I mean, their, their idea of the afterlife uh, is, is kind of, you know, they, they de-emphasize this present life. You know, uh, Hinduism and Buddhism essentially just say this world is bad. And so uh, it's not, it, it's to be endured. It's, it's to be despised but endured so that we can eventually get out of it, break the cycle, and kind of get out of this cycle of life, death, and rebirth and so that we can kind of be away from this. Everything in this world doesn't matter. It only matters in as much as you need to springboard out of it. And it's even like, there's like denominations of Christianity that, 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 that underemphasize the alreadyness of the kingdom of God, right? They're, you know, just wrapped up in the rapture and the end times and left behind books and things like that. But the reality is, if God's kingdom is already here and we are in it right now, then this world, this world matters, this earth matters, right? Caring for God's creation matters because heaven is not some other place and the, the earth as, as we know it today just gets kind of you know, flushed or, or burned up. This world is going to be where heaven is here on this, this planet. Our jobs, our, our vocations, all of these things uh, matter. So, one, uh, the alreadiness of the kingdom of God gives this life, uh, you know, uh, importance. It, it gives us a sense of urgency, but it also gives us, um, there, there's a sense in which we are called by God to enjoy this life here in this world. Right? It's not something that, uh, you know, what it, right, this life sucks, this world sucks, I just need to eke my way through it so that I can eventually get to heaven, it, as if eternal life is something that begins after, uh, after we die. In John 17, Jesus says, now this is eternal life, that my people would know you, the one only true God, and that they would know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is saying eternal life is not something that happens after you die and then you, your eternal life starts then. Eternal life is happening right now. It starts right now. It's something we're experiencing right now. Like this life is something that Jesus calls us to enjoy, right? Psalm 16 says that uh, at the right hand of God there is fullness of joy and eternal pleasure. God, God is calling us to experience and enjoy and participate in and invest in this life as we are experiencing it right now because we're in the kingdom of God right now. That's the application for, for the kingdom of God uh, you know, being right now. But there are also implications and application for the reality that the kingdom of God has not yet come and that it will be coming in the future. And we see those in verses 26 and following. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. You can read about Noah in Genesis 6 through 9, but here's Jesus' big point from the story of Noah. The flood came unexpectedly. No one saw it coming. Everyone was living as if it would never happen. Nobody knew that it was coming. Nobody cared that it was coming. They were living their regular, ordinary lives, completely oblivious and completely indifferent to the fact that, Jesus, that, that the flood was coming. 
Jesus is saying the, the final establishment of God's kingdom, the return of Christ is going to be like that. And the implication and the application is uh, to prepare for it. Right? If God's kingdom is already here now, enjoy it, right? participate in it, experience it, your life has value. But if God's kingdom is not here yet, then you must prepare for it. You, you, you must, uh, you know, un, under any circumstances, you must prepare for it. You must avoid this kind of temptation that there is to live as if it's never going to happen. Verse 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, there was eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on one day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be when the Son of Man is revealed. You can read about Lot in Genesis 12 to 19. Same exact situation, though. Everyone's just living their lives, right, doing their thing. No one thinks that there's any reason to fear the judgment of God until the entire city is consumed by fire from heaven. And so Jesus is warning his people, don't let that happen. Don't be like a person in Noah's day who is just, you know, busying himself with life and work and normal things and just all of the, you know, just, just the, the, the regular busyness of life that you miss the, the urgent reality that God's judgment is coming. Don't be like the people in Sodom who are just living their normal lives, eating and drinking, buying and selling, so that you miss the judgment of God that is coming. Right? Be like Noah who gets on the ark. Right? right? Not the rest of the world who drowns to death. Be like Sodom who leaves the city of destruction rather than everyone else that's vaporized and burned uh, alive. Right? Like Noah, we need to be hiding in, we need to be hiding in the person and work of Christ so that when the judgment of God falls, we are protected from it by Jesus who is our Savior, our shelter, our protector. Like Lot, we need to be fleeing from our sin and our rebellion against God so that when the judgment of God comes, we are not consumed by it. The kingdom of God is not here yet, but it's coming, so prepare for it. Be repenting of your sin now. Be trusting in Christ now so so that when it comes, you're not caught off guard. It's application number one. Number two, we read about in verse 31 and following. God's kingdom is coming, so... Um, anticipate it and, and um, desire it, like long for it, want, like live your life such that you want to be a part of it. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with goods in his house, uh, let him uh, not come down to take them away. Likewise, the one who is in the field, let them not turn back. Most homes in this time were just kind of a rectangle, like a, a with a flat roof, and they would have like an external staircase that you could kind of walk up the side of the house, and then it was kind of another like sitting area on top of the house when the weather uh, would permit. So Jesus is saying, don't be like, you know, imagine you're on top of your roof, you're hanging out, maybe you're having a meal, you're spending time, and someone says, hey, come with me. I have something really important I want to show you. I have something that I need to, to give to you. I have something I need to tell you. And you kind of come down the stairs And then immediately when you're coming down the stairs, instead of, you know, shoulder to shoulder walking with this person who just asked you to come with them, you kind of do a 180 and run into your house and gather all of your stuff that that you, you know, think is really uh, important. Right? Jesus says, don't don't be more concerned with possessions, don't be more concerned with with, uh, worldly with things of this world than you are with God. Don't don't effectively say to Jesus, 
I love you. I want to be with you. I identify with you. I'm on your team. But I just want to have all of my possessions with me as well, right? right? Don't don't say to Jesus uh, effectively, I love my stuff. I love my possessions more than I love you, right? I care about my, the things of this world more than I care about Jesus, right? Jesus says, uh, if you want to be with me in my kingdom, then I need to be your top priority. I need to be the thing that you love the most, that you prize the most, such that you're not going to turn back, turn away, and gather all of these things that you love more than me when you come to be with me. And he says, remember Lot's wife, which is a striking illustration of what that, what that looks like, right? In Genesis 19, uh, you can read it in more detail this week, but the, the gist of it is Lot and his wife and their family leave the city of Sodom uh, because an angel has warned them and says, destruction is coming, so get out of here. And they leave and they make it out in time. And as soon as they leave, uh, fire starts kind of raining down from heaven, consuming that city, And the angel gave them a particular command. He said, escape for your life, and when you do, do not look back. And do not stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Don't look back. Right? It sounds a lot like when Jesus says, you're coming down the stairs from your your roof, and you look back, you turn around and run into your house to get your your stuff. And that's what Lot's wife does. They're running away, and she looks back longingly at uh, Sodom, the city that was marked for destruction. She turns back, looks at it, look, reminisces about the life that she used to have, and how she loved that life, and how she's sad that she is, is leaving it. And, uh, and she's turned instantly into a pillar of salt. Right? She loved the world more than she loved God, and because of that, she experienced God's judgment. And God is saying, my kingdom is not here yet. My kingdom is coming. So prepare for it, right? By repenting and believing the gospel and long for it, desire it, anticipate it, love me and love my kingdom more than you love this world. God wants, God wants everyone, God wants anyone and everyone to be saved and to be reconciled to him and to be a part of his kingdom. But God's kingdom will only be populated by people who love him and by people who want to be there with him, by people who treasure God and treasure the kingdom of God more than they treasure this world and the things that are in this world, which kind of speaks to this uh, you know, upside-down uh, value system or upside-down economy that marks the kingdom of God. Verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Right, this world kind of operates with this, you know, zero sum, right? The, the more you spend, the less you have. And the more you, you know, the more you, the less you spend, the more you keep, the more that you have. It's kind of a, a logical, uh, make, makes sense kind of way that, that resources are distributed in this world. But, the, but God's economy is not like that. It's not a zero sum where the more tightly that you hold on to your life and refuse to let it go, the more life you get, the more life you'll have, the more life you'll experience. It's, it's more like an investment, right? Where if you want to, uh, you know, if you want to turn a million dollars into two million dollars, uh, you don't do it by keeping it in your, under your mattress, keeping it in your house. You do it by investing it in companies that are going to yield a return, and over time, your million dollars will turn into two million 
dollars. Or Jesus uses the illustration of a seed in the Gospel of John. He says, if you take a seed and just leave it on your windowsill, it'll just be a seed forever. You won't lose your seed, but you won't get, you won't, that's it, you'll, you'll never have anything more than a seed. But if you take that seed and you, you lose it, you let it out of your possession, you let it die, as it were, you let it be buried in the ground, then that seed will be watered and that seed is going to grow into a fruit-bearing plant. Likewise, if you want to experience life, real, deep, true, abiding life, right, the, the, the way to do it is not by holding on tightly to your life and, and accumulating more possessions and consolidating power and, and I, I want to have the approval of other people and I want to have all of the comfort and security that I long for. So once I get that, I'll have more life. I'll have better life. Jesus says if you really want life, if, if you hold on to life like that, you'll never, you'll never have it. Right? He who seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But if you willingly give your life away, Right? If you, if you consider God more important than, than others, if you humble yourself instead of being proud, if you're generous instead of selfish, if you honor God even when it comes at the expense of your reputation and the approval of others, if you give your life away, then you'll receive it back. Right? Whoever wants to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. He will find that he has real, deep, abundant life. Verse 34, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other will be left. So, so this, this uh, return of Christ and this final, ultimate uh, establishment of God's kingdom that's going to come, it's going to happen suddenly. It's going to happen in an instant. It's going to happen out of nowhere. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to save his people. He's going to judge his enemies. And in that moment, the only thing that will matter is how you responded to Christ, whether you turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus. Right? You, you, either, you either respond rightly to Christ and you're his and you're, you're with him and he welcomes you into his presence or you haven't and you experience judgment and wrath. And so immediately uh, the people in his audience, the Pharisees and the others are saying, where, Lord? Like, where is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? We need to know. We, we want to make sure that this doesn't sneak up on us and that we are caught off guard. Where is this going to happen? And he says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In other words, you'll, like, you'll know. <laughs> like, you'll, there will be unmistakable sign. You'll see it. If you're driving down the road and there's uh, a dozen vultures flying a half a mile up, then all, you're, you're, you're fully expecting in a half a mile from now to see like a, a dead deer lying on the side of the road or something that they're all kind of circling over. Chances are they're not all circling over nothing. And chances are if there is a dead animal in the road, there's going to be, uh, you know, there either are now or there soon will be vultures or buzzards kind of flying over it. And so Jesus says that's how it will be with the return of Christ. All right? the, the Christ's return in judgment will be visible. It will be predictable. It will be like lightning that kind of flashes across the sky. Uh, it will be impossible for people not to see it and, and recognize it when it is coming. So so the, the, the ultimate question that's being asked here, when is the kingdom of God coming? What are the circumstances around it? Where, like, what Jesus tell us about this kingdom of God? And there's two answers. One, it's already here, now. You're in it. It's in your midst. 
So enjoy it, walk in it, experience it, live your life well as a citizen of it. Practice the spiritual disciplines, read your Bible, pray, be a good spouse, be a good parent, be a good employee, be a good church member, be intentional with your life right now because it matters because the kingdom is now. That's one. And two, the kingdom is not here yet. It's coming. So prepare for it. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Trust in the sufficiency of his death to pay for your sin. Uh, you know, experience the new life that comes from his resurrection and desire it and long for it. Right? The kingdom of God will be populated by people who want to be in it. So love God more than you love this world. Right? And, and, and uh, prepare yourself to experience eternal life with God under his righteous rule forever and ever. So Jesus is telling us about the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the king and that we have the privilege of being citizens in and a part of your kingdom. Lord, inasmuch as the the kingdom of God is here now, May we be good citizens of it. May we enjoy it and participate in it for your glory. And Lord, inasmuch as the kingdom of God is coming, uh, may we position ourselves rightly uh, in response to it. May, May we long for it. May we anticipate it. And may we prepare for it by living lives that glorify you and by trusting in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.